Well, good morning. So we're going to be uh, in Ephesians chapter 5, where we uh, looked in the scripture reading just a moment ago. I uh, really appreciate Michael reading that uh, so clearly for us. Um, but we did, we're going to be looking at the theme of walking in wisdom with God and learning to walk in wisdom with God. And this is a theme that's going through Ephesians chapters 5 and 6 through the year, just really teaching one lesson a month on this subject. And we're doing February's lesson today uh, because Cody and I had been doing a, a series through Second Peter chapter 1. And so this got pushed back, obviously, to this month. And so for the next two weeks, we're going to be looking at verses 3 through 14 uh, and verses 3 through 7, particularly today with how wisdom considers consequences in Ephesians 5, 3 through 7. And let's go ahead and read these verses again before we get more into the lesson. Uh, Ephesians 5, verses 3 through 7. And I'll just make a couple brief comments after that before we look more specifically at the verses. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 3 through 7. It says, But immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not be partakers with them. So really the same warning is repeated three times in this section and it gets more grave and more serious each time it's repeated. So verse 3 begins the warning, immorality, impurity, and greed should not even be named among us because that's not proper for saints. Verse 5 then progresses it just a bit further, saying that no immoral, impure, or covetous man, the three things that were emphasized in verse 3, we should know a certainty that these kind of people have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ. And then in verse 6, it says, because of these things, again, these, these same qualities, God's wrath will come upon the sons of disobedience. Now, why is this so serious? Really, verses 1 and 2, this really comes down to one of the most fundamental things that God commands throughout his word. Um, it's stated in the Old Covenant. It's restated in 1 Peter chapter 1. Where God says, you shall be holy for I am holy, right? So Ephesians chapter 5 begins with being imitators of God as beloved children, striving to be like God, to be holy like God, to see and admire his, nation, his nature, to have a deeper adoration for his character. And as we're learning to walk in his love as Christ has modeled love, giving himself for us and sacrificing himself for us to serve us, to die on our behalf, that in imitating that, there are, there are things that the gravity of how contradictory they are to God's nature and God's love, we need to be learning to take those things more seriously as well and treat those things more seriously. So we'll be focusing on how wisdom considers consequences. And we'll start in verses 3 and 4 with considering the value of our identity. Um, I really want to center this point on the end of verse 3, where he emphasizes that these, these sins of immorality, impurity, and greed, seemingly kind of encompassing every principle of, of sin and its practices, is just not proper for saints. 
So really the first point is the more we value God, as in verses 1 and 2, we're trying to grow in our adoration of God. We want to imitate him. We want to walk in his steps like what we've sung this morning already. If we value God more, then we will value and protect the identity that he's granted us. And more specifically, what I mean by that is this term saint. So I don't know if you've thought much about this, but this term saint is used to refer to God's children, God's people, 60 times in the New Testament. And you think about how often we use the term Christian to refer to God's people, right? Like we refer to one another as Christians or we think of ourselves as Christians. Someone might ask like, well, what are you religiously? And you may say, well, I'm just a Christian. Did you know that the word Christian in the entire New Testament, that word is only used three times by comparison of the word saint being used 60 times? So in the New Testament, what, what is majorly used to describe God's people much more than Christian is the idea of being a saint. And that, I think, is by reason of what it means. So saint literally just means holy one. You may have like a reference in your margin. Uh, my Bible has like these notes in the pages where it'll give you clarification that saint means holy one. But that also just means it's the idea of being set apart for special use or special value, or the idea of being sanctified, again, being cleansed, or it's a process of uh, what is it that caused you to be set apart or what caused you to become holy. If you look back at Ephesians chapter 1, Uh, Paul, when he began this letter, started the letter referring to Christians in that way. Um, I just want to make the point that this idea of being a saint, it's who God has made us to be, but it's also who he calls us to be at the same time. So Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1, says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. And kind of interestingly, so Ephesians begins referring to the Christians here as saints. It's just identifying them as that's who they are. Um, But in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2, uh, he mentions that the church there, it's the church of God which is at Corinth to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, which is, again, it's describing how they became saints and what, what happened to make them identify as saints. But he says they're saints by calling with all who in every place call in the name of our Lord, their Lord and ours. The reason why this is important, seeing that we're also called to be saints, it's both who we are, but it's also at the same time, it's who we are striving to become. Uh, If you remember the church in Corinth, they were actually a group that was guilty of everything warned against in Ephesians chapter 5. So the Corinthian church, they were a group that had festering immorality in their group. They had festering impurity. And they were a group that also struggled with covetousness and greed and idolatry. All of those things were festering and destroying the Corinthian church from the inside. But you want to know what's interesting about the way that the Corinthian letter begins? Before he addresses their immorality in chapter 5 and in chapter 6, or their idolatry later in chapter 9 and chapter 10, he begins by reinforcing the value of their identity and helping them understand the nature of who they are. Because ultimately what motivates us practically to take sin seriously 
to abstain from sin and to strive to overcome sin, even when it's present in our life, is understanding the value of who God has made us to be and the value of that calling of striving to grow into that identity as well. Something else that's important about um, the fact that we're also called to be saints. So in Ephesians chapter 5, when it says, these things should not even be named among you. Other translations will say there should not even be a hint of these things. I think the Corinthian letter and the fact that the Corinthians were called to be saints, it makes it clear that it's not as if we're trying to be like self-empowered or self-righteous or hide sin and tuck it away privately in our lives so that other people won't know about it. But Paul was both bold and compassionate in the way that he dealt with the sins in Corinth. He was bold in just opening it up and addressing it head on. He left no secrets about the issues going on at Corinth. Again, he just addressed their immorality as it was. But at the same time, we know from 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, as Paul was very bold and very grave in dealing with their sin, he was also patiently equipping them to overcome those sins as well in realizing the struggle of overcoming those things as well and the time that's needed. So in our relationships with one another, we are striving to reinforce compassionately but also boldly that we need to be overcoming sin and equipping one another to understand ways that we can be putting sin out of our lives as a mission that it not be named among us as is proper for saints. Um, I think this is important to understand is that this is very fundamental. One of the most fundamental and vital expressions of our faith and our love for God is the daily diligence, every day determining and striving to be as holy as God is. So not just being holy at certain times or holy in certain groups, but that we're trying to bring everything that we are to God, to refine it, to be holy, to be set apart, that we're wanting everything about us to be clean and pure and presentable to God. If you look back at Ephesians chapter 1, and if we look at verses 3 through, uh, three through 5, he addresses this, that God has um, called us and prepared, uh, prepared a way for us to be able to be holy and blameless before him. Look at chapter 3 through 5. Or chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. What will happen really often with this word predestined in the world is people will mistreat that word or they'll define it wrong and they'll say, well, that means that people don't have a choice and that God just kind of indiscriminately decides who will be saved and who's not. And that's just really not true. Really, the idea is that God has been preparing work and preparing resources from before the foundation of the world to make sure that those who are adopted into his family through Christ could have perfect assurance that God has foreseen every possible issue we would ever be able to suffer in our faith. He has foreseen it. He has prepared provisions for it. So in verse 3, we've inherited every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places that are specific resources so that we could be holy and blameless before him, right? 
And I think if you think about verse 3 as well, that the idea of being a saint, being set apart and holy, it's not just the idea of being holy conceptually, but it's the idea of being most treasured and valuable. Think about something you possess that to you is like your most treasured possession. Where if somebody took that and mistreated it, or they got it dirty, or they broke it, or ripped it, or whatever, that that would be something that would be offensive to you. Because it would be as if you're, they, they were insulting you by mistreating something that you so obviously value and treasure yourself. And so to be a saint is to be most valuable to God. God is invested in us. He's clearly demonstrated the degree of investment he's put into us. And he's calling us to make that same investment in him as well as we see that. So the idea is we therefore should be motivated to uproot all immorality, all impurity, and all greed out of our hearts. God doesn't give us the liberty to justify sin in our lives. We don't have the liberty to hide sin as like a secret comfort in our distress. We don't have the liberty to sin and then just kind of justify it in a way where well, my passion was so strong, or I just felt so lonely, or I felt this way, or this person did this. God doesn't give us those excuses to justify keeping sin in our life. God calls us to see that sin is something that is consequential. It's something destructive. It's something sickening. And so we need to be learning as we grow in imitating God and seeing his nature to also at the same time see the nature of sin. Look at Ephesians chapter 2 really quickly uh, to continue to illustrate this. Just in terms of learning to see sin as God does, learning to see sin as being as disgusting as God sees that it is, or as consequential as God says it is, I think it would help to remember that we've all come from a condition where we were lost in these qualities we're being warned to put away. Uh, Look at Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 7. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, Even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So in the first three verses, where did our sin, when we were enslaved uh, to sin and lost in it, where did that put us? What was the result? You know, the worst food poisoning that I've ever had was actually one of the most delicious uh, foods that I, um, that I enjoy. Um, I really, really like fettuccine Alfredo with chicken. And my family one time, we went to a restaurant. It was a nicer restaurant. And I ordered fettuccine Alfredo with chicken because, again, like if that's on the menu, I'm probably going to get it. It's one of my favorite dishes. And it tasted really good. But a few hours later, it literally felt like somebody had uh, put um, a bunch of knives into my digestive system. And I was having a good time with my family that evening and some relatives who were at our house. And I basically just had to go into isolation and just suffer for hours. And then later that night, I was lying on that couch or lying on a couch in our living room, not able to sleep because of how much pain I was in. 
And eventually I just ended up vomiting over and over and over and over. And it was one of the most miserable evenings I've ever experienced in my life. And I, I think I've had food poisoning a couple of times, but nowhere near as bad as, as that time. I never ate at that restaurant again. And I cannot eat fettuccine Alfredo that tastes like that Alfredo. Even though, again, it's one of my favorite dishes. It has to taste differently than how it tasted at that restaurant, right? So that's like verses 1 through 3. We've experienced and we've been able to see the outcome of our sin as something that produces death. It's foul. It causes us to fester with death. And if you look back in chapter 5 and you look at the outcome of Jesus sacrificing himself with this irony that we sin because we feel like it's giving us life, it's giving us something good, but in reality, it's like it's causing us to have to vomit up everything that we've ingested because it's like poison. But in chapter 5, verse 2, notice Jesus' sacrifice was an offering and a fragrance aroma. I kind of mean to be gross about this, but my vomit smelt horrible. And I wasn't tempted to eat it up again because fettuccine Alfredo was in it, right? But again, we need to learn to see sin more clearly like that, that immorality and impurity or greed, even if there is some very superficial attraction we have to those things, we need to learn to see those things and reinforce the reality of those things by faith. That even if we do give in to sin, any pleasure or whatever we think is joy we're getting from that is like me eating that Alfredo and it tastes good for a few minutes. But then again, the, the torturous agony of food poisoning, I would, no, I would not have gone back and eaten it again, right? So one of the practical applications of this in verse 4 is really interesting. This is something that's not really said quite as clearly in other places. Um, I like the way that ESV translates uh, verse 4 where it talks about coarse joking but this should change our sense of humor and what we find entertaining. And I think this can be something that we easily want to keep away from God or keep for ourselves. But holiness is meant to affect everything in our life, including what we find to be humorous. So to be really clear about this, I think the kinds of things he's talking about in verse 4 with filthy speaking, silly talk, coarse jesting, or crude joking, we shouldn't find sexual jokes funny. We, we shouldn't find sexual innuendos funny. We shouldn't find it funny when people use God as a joke or joke about things with God or his word. We shouldn't find it funny or entertaining when people use God's name in vain and God forbid that we ever use his name in vain ourselves. You know, we need to be more serious-minded about those things, even when it's extremely awkward. I've been in environments where everybody is laughing at a joke that just frankly was extremely inappropriate. And it's surprisingly difficult to not flatter the moment and just get by by laughing along with everybody else. But notice back in verse 7, we're called not to be partakers with those around us who are contributing to the works of darkness, even in their sense of humor or what they find to be entertaining. The reality is we're called to be saints. We're called to be lights in the world. We're called to be holy just as God is holy, even when the pressure of people around us is trying to get us to think differently about God, even through the subtlety of humor. 
Now, in verse 4, I think it's also interesting. He says, but rather what's fitting is giving thanks. So instead of making light of things that God takes seriously, we are striving to take God more seriously. We want to thank him for the things that he's doing. We want to appreciate him more. And as the world does not appreciate God's gifts, as it doesn't appreciate God's nature, we are striving again to be holy not just in what we're abstaining from, but what we're pursuing. And we'll look at that more in the next lesson. But we also need to consider the value of our inheritance. So just like the last point fundamentally, the more we value God, the more we will value and protect the inheritance he's given us. Look back at chapter 1 again. And as you're turning there, really chapter 5, if you're ever wondering, like, what's the practical value of the things said in chapters 1, 2, and 3 of Ephesians, right? Because really, Ephesians 1 through 3 is looking behind the scenes to see all this great stuff that God has done, what you've inherited, who you are now. Chapter 5 relies on those principles of truth in order to make these applications that we're considering this morning. So chapter 5 is like the practical application of these things in chapter 1. So starting in verses 11 through 14, and then we'll look at verse 18, the idea is God could not give us any more valuable inheritance or give us any greater assurance of this inheritance. Look at verse 11 through 14. Also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who are the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. So just think about it. Verse 13. Could God give any greater assurance that he is fully invested and committed to the end? Is there any greater thing that God could possibly do or say to convince us that our inheritance is firm and reliable and set? Look at verse 18. Because there's another side of this. It's not just that we've obtained this inheritance, but that we ourselves also are God's inheritance. Look at verse 18. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. One thing I just want to make a point of with this very simply is this must encourage us to value delayed gratification. I think especially parents understand the value of teaching your children to wait to be gratified, especially when it relates to something you're promising, right? Um, I've seen multiple videos in the past years of experiments being done on kids, not like mean experiments, but, you know, like they'll put a kid in a room, they'll put some donuts or candy on a table, and they'll say something like, hey, you can have one now, or I'll give you five if you wait a few minutes until I come back. You know, and they leave and you'll see the kids like squirming in their chairs and you'll see like one or two maybe eat the candy. And then you'll see the kid who actually waits and they'll be struggling with it and then they come back and they get the reward and everybody else is jealous that now the person who waited is actually getting more. But really that's the idea is we need to be encouraged by God's word and, the, and his promises to wait for the way that God gratifies and satisfies true and pure desire. Look at this in Hebrews chapter 12. 
So I think this is really powerfully illustrated in Hebrews 12 with the example of Esau uh, selling his birthright. And as we read this, just notice the similarity of language with the emphasis first on sanctity, holiness, but also with inheritance. So look at this in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 14 through 17. Hebrews 12, 14 through 17. By the way, just as a side note, it's kind of interesting that in Hebrews 12, he begins the chapter talking about how God is disciplining us as sons, which is, again, related to this idea of we suffer and we have to wait, but it's because God is dealing with us as a parent deals with their children. Um, Verse 14, pursue peace with all men and the sanctification, that is the holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. That there be no immoral or godless person like Esau, who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he now found no place of repentance, though he sought for it with tears. So if this doesn't make sense, just think about it this way. So like Jason, imagine if you're really hungry, you haven't eaten all day, you've been really busy, you've been out at work, you come home, and you're terribly hungry. And imagine when you come home, Jason, I say, if you're hungry, you can sell me your whole house and all your property and everything in your house, and I'll give you a sandwich in return. Can you imagine saying, oh, good deal, and then signing it away and giving it away? (laughs) What would that say about you if you were willing to do something like that, right? Here's the thing. We need to see sin as an utterly foolish exchange. I remember a brother in Minnesota uh, years ago reading this passage, and he brought a Snickers bar to the assembly, and he held it up and said, who wants this Snickers bar? And of course, like, everybody raised their hand. And then he kept increasing the price. He says, okay, I'll give it to you for 25 cents. Who still wants it? And then, of course, everybody like, yeah, yeah, 25 cents. And he eventually gets to, like, thousands of dollars, and, of course, nobody's ha- nobody has their hand raised anymore, right? And, of course, the point is, that's what Esau did. Now, what does it say about Esau? Knowing that his inheritance was ultimately being passed down by Abraham and the promises that God gave to Abraham, the fact that he was so quickly willing to give it away at such a silly opportunity and for such a silly cost, what does that say about the value he already placed on that inheritance? This is not just about being hungry. It exposed something specific in verse 16. How does the Hebrew writer describe Esau? immoral and godless. How do we know that Esau was immoral and godless? The value he placed on God's inheritance. Listen, this is why we need to value what God has given us more because when we sin and so easily make this foolish exchange, it's not just about the passion of the moment, it's showing how you valued your inheritance even before that moment in temptation hit. And so again, we need to be reinforcing the value of these things to guard our hearts against temptation. Satan is trying to tempt us with the most foolish exchange that could possibly be made. Ezekiel chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, he mentions in Ephesians 5 that greed ultimately is idolatry. 
and that an idolater has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. And I think it's important to understand the reason why we just don't see how important these things are, we're all coming like, like Ephesians chapter 2. We're coming from a place where our hearts have been calloused. We have been blind. And the reality is what God demonstrates is idolatry blinds our hearts from seeing how God is affected and feels about these things. Ezekiel uh, chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, God is talking about the uh, Jews living in the time when Jerusalem would be destroyed, as we've been using his illustrations for a lot of lessons recently. And here's what he says about what's going to happen with these people through their punishment. He says, Then those of you who escape will remember me among the nations where they are carried captive, how I have been broken over their whoring heart that is departed from me and over their eyes that go whoring after their idols. They will be, and they will be loathsome in their own sight for the evils that they have committed, for all their abominations. And they shall know that I am the Lord. I have not said in vain that I would do this evil to them. Maturity demands not just seeing that sin is some kind of moral wrong by itself, but why is it wrong? It's because of how God is broken and hurt by our sin. Maturing in our faith is not being forgiven of our sins and then forgetting about the consequences. It's remembering the consequences of what we had done against God and the cost of those consequences. Maturity demands appreciating that if I do this that I'm tempted to do, how will that impact God? How does God feel about this? What will this do to my relationship with God if I give in to this temptation? Maturity recognizes these things more and more clearly and it guards our hearts and keeps them in safety. So the idea is we just need to give more serious consideration to how God feels about our decisions. That's the fundamental thing that Israel did not pay attention to or regard when God had to destroy Jerusalem and desolate it. It's the fundamental thing that he exposes was keeping them from repentance and from turning away from their idolatry. It blinds the heart and it blinds the eyes. So finally, in Ephesians 5, verse 6, he says, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. So this might, this might sound strange, and it may be somewhat uncomfortable, but the more we value God, the more we will value the truth of his wrath and the truth of his judgment. And why would he need to say, do not be deceived? And I think this is very important. Why would it be tempting to choose to be deceived after knowing the truth? He's not warning people who have never known the truth of God's wrath or known the truth about sin. He's telling people who have come to know the truth, don't let anybody deceive you about these things. It's a temptation to forsake truth when it's inconvenient, if it causes us grief, if it causes pain or causes isolation. You know, and then it can seem liberating when we're given a different option or when somebody may teach a different message that gives less credit to the reality of God's wrath. Because maybe we can live a more convenient life or be relieved from grief that God's wrath causes us or pain or isolation, etc. 
we actually see that godly people have struggled with this in the past. Look at Psalm 73. Um, This is one of my favorite psalms uh, for a number of reasons that we're going to be looking at. But Psalm 73 is written by someone named Asaph. And I timed how long it takes to read this psalm. It's two minutes. So I do want to read this psalm in two parts. I'm going to start with verses 1 through 14. Just make a quick comment. And then we'll finish it in verse 15 through 28. But I think you're going to see very clearly the principles we're talking about in Ephesians 5 as the same things this psalmist was working through. And we're going to see that he really struggled very badly with these things. So verses 1 through 14, Psalm 73. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pains in their death and their body is fat. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Therefore pride is their necklace, the garments of violence covers them. Their eye bulges from fatness, the imaginations of their heart run riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression, they speak from on high. They have set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue parades through the earth. Therefore, his people return to this place and waters of abundance are drunk by them. They say, how does God know? And is there knowledge with the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked and always at ease. They have increased in wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure, washed my hands in innocence. For I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. So really here's the idea is Asaph is reflecting on the fact that he saw the ease, the comfortability and the convenience of the life of the wicked. And then he looked at the wicked, then he looked at his own life and he said, well, verse 14, I'm being chastened every morning. Here I am feeling like I'm going through the torture chamber every day to keep myself pure. What's the use of it all? Why am I wasting my time? If I can just have the ease of the wicked if I just stopped caring as much about this. Well, Verse 15 through 28. If I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight until I came into the sanctuary of God. Then I perceived their end. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand. With your counsel, you will guide me and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works." Remembering God's wrath, what did it do for this psalmist? Was it a blessing for him 
to meditate on God's wrath, to meditate on the reality of his judgment. The righteous see the blessing, the safety, and the reassurance of meditating on the truth of God's wrath. And it brings them renewed joy. This may sound very strange, and again, this may be an uncomfortable thing, but righteous people in Scripture, they didn't just acknowledge God's wrath as just kind of like an existing idea. They meditated on it. They were grieved by it. They were isolated by it. And yet they rejoiced in it. Notice again in verse 28. The nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord my refuge that I may tell of all your works. You know, in Savannah, we get hurricanes from time to time and we get to take hurricanes. But every time there's a hurricane, you always hear about somebody on the news who's like, my house is all I have, so I'm not going anywhere. This is where I live. This is where I've invested. And so I'm going to die here. And then people who see that on the news, and the reason why it's on the news is people look at that and they mock and say, are you kidding me? Save your life. Get out. If you're going to die there, what is, what is that really ultimately worth? Is that worth losing your life? See, it's a blessing to be aware when wrath is coming, to escape and seek refuge. And if we really understand these things by faith, it'll keep us from envying the wicked. It'll keep us from admiring things that those do who seem to be at ease, who seem to be freely indulging in pleasure, who seem to be succeeding in the way that they're living apart from God or at his expense. But those who are righteous, in verse 17, they live by faith, perceiving the end from the beginning. God's wrath is simply a truth. We can choose what we'll do with that truth. We can choose to walk away from it. We can choose not to believe it because of its inconvenience to us. But in the end, what will be vindicated is not what we choose to believe as much as it will be God's truth and what he commends to us in his word. There is a day of judgment. There is a day when God's wrath will be poured out on all ungodliness and unrighteousness. And this shouldn't discourage us in view of God's holiness or judgment. It should encourage us with great resolve to strive to depend on him, to see sin as something that is not good for us not good for our relationship with God, something that has no benefit to our relationship with God or our lives in this world, but that in God we live a life most abundant when we are striving to be free from sin and its consequences and to aid and serve others for that same purpose. So that's where we'll end the lesson for this this morning. I hope these things have been encouraging and also convicting. Again, the warnings in Ephesians 5 are stated with as much gravity and language as can be stated. The reality is we do need to be striving to put away all immorality, all impurity, and all greed from our midst. God's wrath will be uh, exercised against ungodliness even as it exists among his people. And so if there's something in your life that you've been hiding or struggling with and need help or prayers or just need to make confession of, Now is such a beautiful time that God has given us to be together, to help each other, to serve each other, to be patient with one another, but to treat these things with the gravity that he's called us to. So if there's anything we can do for you in relation to these things, please bring it forward while we stand and sing.